0: Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Acts 17. Today we're in verses 16 to 34. Acts 17, 16 to 34. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, as we look at a rather famous passage... Paul speaking from the Aeropagus, from Mars Hills. We ask, Father, that our familiarity with the passage would not negate our need to hear it afresh, to hear it anew, to have it impact our lives. Father, uh, take your inspired and errant word and apply it to our lives. As James warns, may we not be hearers of the word only. But in fact, doers as well. So allow us to do the will, your will, do your word in a manner that is empowered by your spirit for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I was in my mid 20s when I was invited by the chief judge of Galveston, Texas. To come and speak to all of the judges and the lawyers who were part of that particular court system. I knew that I was way too young. My skills were way too suspect. And when I walked in, I would be going into hostile territory. That was a lot of years ago. I doubt it would work this way today. But the Chief Justice was a born again believer, an elderly man, and he required before his monthly meetings that all the other judges and all the other public defenders sit through a 15 minute devotion. And I was the guy that particular month. And I thought, man, I've got nothing to offer except the Word of God. And I thought, man, what should I do? And so I prayed and The Lord led me to a passage that was David acting as a judge, but again, the prophet Nathan turned the tables acting as a prosecutor and essentially said, David, you're the man. And David was cut to the quick because of his sin, even though he was trying to cause someone else to be imprisoned or to face justice, it was David's need for justice. I thought maybe if I used a passage that related to the court systems, that related to judges and lawyers, maybe they would listen. I figured I had 30 seconds to gather their interest. If I didn't in 30 seconds, it would be downhill. Well, I'd love to tell you that when I was done with that passage in the gospel, We played just as I am, and the judges and the lawyers came down on their knees and knelt before the altar and asked God into their hearts. That really didn't happen. But I think the passage probably held their interest, and at least some of them that would have dismissed me based on my lack of skill and lack of age, lack of maturity, I think the passage held some so that they heard God's word and they heard the gospel. But I knew I was going into hostile territory and in hostile territory, we need to stand on something that's firm, something that's strong, something that's solid, something that's true, biblical truth. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does when he arrives at Athens and he faces a number of philosophers. Epicureans, they're the ones that say, if it feels good, do it. And Stoics, they're the fatalists, grin and bear it as he faces them on the Areopagus. Areopagus is nicknamed Mars Hill. If you've seen it, it's this huge jut of marble that comes up out of the ground. It's actually bigger than this room. It's probably two or three times the size of this room. It's kind of a pinkish type of marble that you go up on, and it's high enough that if you fell off of it, you would get hurt. And it just juts out of the ground, and you are given this immense view of Athens. It's beautiful. And there the philosophers would meet and they would discuss the latest philosophy of the day. Hostile territory for the gospel. Well, let's pick up. I want to read in God's word from Acts 17. I'm going to read verses 16 to 23. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols so he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace the agora every day with those who happened to be there some of the epicurean and stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said what does this babbler that's spermologos uh, it really means seed picker when it is given as a name towards a person, this is not a compliment. What does this babbler wish to say? Others says he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. uh, The resurrection, Anastasis was actually also a name of a false god. So some misunderstood Paul when he said that Jesus rose from the dead. They thought he was talking about Jesus and another false god named the Resurrection. He's a preacher of these foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the Resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Aropagus, that is Mars Hill, named after Aris, the false god of war, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend some time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus on Mars Hills, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim. To you. you can imagine what happens to Paul when he comes to Athens. Certainly his spirit is provoked within him because of idolatry, but he's also in the place of the first city-state democracy. He's in the place where we have Socrates and Plato. He's one of the three great university cities, along with Tarsus and Alexandria. He's in Athens. Athens. Now, obviously, the city has fallen from its heyday in the 5th century B.C., and yet it's still a place where philosophers would gather, a place where intellectual pursuits could be had at any moment. And you can imagine that Paul just feels at home in this place. And he's overlooking the city, and he looks up, and he sees the the Parthenon, that is dedicated to Athena for Athens, the, the false goddess. And he sees the temple of Zeus right there, Olympiad. At one time, it would have 104 pillars, 90 feet tall, not yet completely built in the time of Paul, but a lot of it's still standing. And he sees this, and yet his heart is provoked within him because he sees the idolatry all around him. He sees individuals who are seeking false gods, false faiths that lead to a crisis, eternity, separated from God in a literal hell, and his soul is provoked within him. That's what idolatry ought to do. It ought to provoke our souls within us as we look around And we see the temptations of others and ourselves to follow after false gods. Anything that is more important to us than our relationship with the living God is idolatry. And so we look around and we see this all over our land, all over our world. Individuals pursuing false gods, false face, sincerely heading in the wrong direction. Because there's one way, Jesus Christ. It's only through faith in Christ. It's only our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. It is only through faith in the Son, Christ, by which you and I are saved. And yet we see idolatry all around us. We are tempted by idolatry. There's the false gods of the Baal of Canaan or Eros immorality, draws and promises what it will never deliver, and takes our eyes off of the living God and onto things that are impure. We see Minerva. Minerva is the God of justice and science and technology, that little thing in our hands that we are drawn to all the time. And sometimes we can't make it through a meal without checking it, and we hear it go off, and and we're with people, but, but we check this little box and it gets more of our attention than anything, including God. We think of mammon. Mammon is the false god of money and materialism. We look at our coinage and it says, in God we trust. But sometimes it's in this God, the idol of money and advancement of which you and I truly trust. I think of Bacchus, also called Dionysus. This is the false god of depending on substances. And certainly in a group this large, some of us have addictions that we need to overcome. And if you have addictions, you probably are not gonna overcome it on your own. Not only do you need the empowerment of the spirit, but you need some of, the believers to come around to pray, to hold you accountable, and to spur you on. But it's not just those who have problems with addictions; it's also those who periodically go too far with substances. I remember about two weeks ago, I was out in public and I ran into a young gal, an adult. I knew her to be a Christ follower. She knew me to be a pastor. And we were talking and, and this isn't what you normally say to a pastor, not her pastor, but a pastor. She said, I'm going to a wedding in a couple weeks. I'm probably gonna have to sleep in the next day because I'll be hung over. She was already looking forward to losing control. That's idolatry, it's taking her eyes off of the living God and putting it on to something that's damaging. Or I think of Venus or Epaphrodite, the God of vanity and beauty that dominates our society. Or narcissist that's worshipped by millions, if not billions. That's the me God. And it's all about my satisfaction and my comfort and what I want rather than what God says is good and right for me. Paul looked out. Over the people of his day. And his spirit grieved within him. Because he saw individuals heading in the wrong direction. Following false gods and false idols. Being drawn in by them. Taking their eyes off of the one true living God. And on to the creation. Rather than focusing on the creator. So Paul goes to. The synagogues, he goes to the Agora, the marketplace. He strikes up conversations. And then he is invited to the Arapagus, that huge area called Mars Hill, that jut of rock, marble rock that comes out of the ground. Now he's really entering hostile territory. Forget a few judges and lawyers in Galveston, Texas. He is in very hostile territory. And they call him a babbler. I already said that's spermologos. It's, it literally means a, a robin or some kind of bird that picks a seed here and picks a seed here and picks a seed there. And when it's attached to a person, it talks about an individual who doesn't have a fluid philosophy that is cogent. Instead, one tries to, Attach this little bit of information and that little bit of information and that little bit of information and there is nothing coherent about it. That's what they're saying Paul is like. He doesn't make sense. We're we're not sure that all is there, that the elevator doesn't go all the way to the top. They're mocking him and yet he teaches them about God and it's a hostile crowd. It's got Epicureans and it got Stoics. The Epicureans, we have them all over today. The Epicureans believe that we've got one go around and this life is it. If it feels good, do it. Go ahead and pursue everything you want because you'll answer to no one. When life is over, it is over. It doesn't matter how you, I, we live. You just get one go around, go for the gusto and don't worry about answering to a God. That's the Epicureans. To them, Paul says, verse 31, he, the father, has fixed a day on which you will judge the world in righteousness by a man, you can capitalize that man, that's Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul is clear. This life on terra firma is not all we have. This is not it. We will answer for how we live our lives. If you're a believer, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you will never face condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will not lose your salvation Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. But you and I still will face a judgment, not a judgment of damnation, not a judgment determining where we will spend eternity. That's been determined by believing or rejecting Christ. Believe in Christ, you will spend eternity with God forever. And yet 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we, Believers, we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one will receive what we've done in the body, whether agathon or phalos, whether good or worthless. Much better translation than evil. In other words, because we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are saved, we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. But we still are answerable, for what we did with the time and the talents and the treasures that God entrusted to us, we're answerable for the spiritual gifts that He gives us at the moment of conversion and maybe even later on in our walk with the Lord. We're answerable to that. And God says some will receive extra rewards, but some, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, as though going through fire, our works will be burned up. Some will have gold, silver, and precious stones, and the impurities will be smelt off. But others will have works of wood, hay, and stubble, and it will be destroyed as though in fire. And though we are saved through the blood of Christ, the extra rewards that we could have had are gone from us. The Epicurean philosophy is empty. John 10.10 says he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. But he's not just talking about this life. He is, but he's also talking about the life to come. This is the appetizer. The feast begins at the marriage banquet of the lamb. And we live for him now. And then we bask in his blessing for all of eternity. So Paul talked to the Epicureans who had a wrong philosophy. If you see it, do it. If you like it, go for it. You got only one go around. Make it all about you. And then he talked to the Stoics. The Stoics were founded in the third century BC by Zeno. It's an empty one. It basically says, grin and bear it. The gods may be out there, in fact, it's a little bit pantheistic. You're kind of a part of the Godhead, but the gods don't care about you. They're deistic. They're not interested in you. So Grin and bear it. endure life. And the founder, Zeno, actually took his own life. To so this, Paul said in verse 28, actually quoting several of their poets, in him, we live and move and have our being, Epimenides. And even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring, quoting Eratus. And so Paul, who knows their philosophies, who knows their poets, their publishers, is able to quote the right things to interact with this group called the Stoics. And what does he say? In him, we have and move and have our being. In other words, God is not deistic. God is not disinterested. He is involved. He is moving. You, I, we are the object of God's rapt attention. Who do we know that needs to hear that message? That suffering and despondency and despair and discouragement. Who needs to know that, There is a living God, the God, who creates us, who sustains us. The second person died for us, conquered death and rose again and offers eternal life for us and makes a place. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again so that where I am, you may be also. This God loves us, cares for us, we're the object of his rapt attention. Rather than being a distant, deistic, disinterested God, the God, the Creator, sustains us and offers redemption through the blood of Christ. And notice how Paul offers the message. I love it. I want to read verses 22 and 23 once again. So Paul, standing in the midst of the arrow said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I have passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Whatever therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. I'm amazed at what Paul does. He doesn't start with the Old Testament. He doesn't start with Jesus. They know nothing about the Old Testament. They know nothing about Jesus. And so he starts with what they do know. Hey, I walked around your place. You guys are so religious. And I even saw a monument to the unknown God. And what you do not know, I know about, and I would like to tell you about it. How different is that than how sometimes individuals present Christ? They beat up someone's faith. They beat up someone's religion. They go at it in a caustic frontal way because we don't compromise. Paul doesn't do that. In fact, if this weren't in the text, we might say, whoa, that's pretty close to heresy. Found an image, a monument of an unknown God and whom you don't know. I know, let me tell you about him. And so rather than a frontal attack, he learns their culture, he learns their poetry. He walks around their area. He's engaging with his fellow workers. He's engaging with his fellow neighbors. He's engaging with those he recreates with. He understands their culture. He speaks their language. And without compromise, there's no compromise. One God, one creator, one way, Jesus Christ. And yet he engages in their culture without a caustic frontal attack to share with them the Christ. And there is no compromise. He says this. Let me read verses 30 to 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. I love this because he's already told us there's one way Jesus. That is the exclusive aspect of the gospel. One way, only through Christ. But now he mentions the inclusive offer of the gospel, doesn't he? But now he commands all people, everyone, you're included, everyone to repent because he has fixed a day on which you will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul preaches truth. He doesn't needlessly attack. He never shirks back from biblical truth, but he finds common ground without compromise. He engages in their lives and he points them to the one that will give them eternal life through faith. And he says in verse 28, citing their philosophers, for in him we live and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. I've already mentioned that's Epimenides and Aratus. I'm amazed. How does Paul know this stuff? He studied them, he studied the culture, he studied a new city, he knows something about them. He builds spiritual bridges and he shares the truths of the gospel. And what were the results? Let me read verses 32 to 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Isn't that what happens when we share the gospel? Some mocked. Happened to Paul. It's gonna happen to us. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Aeropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You gotta love what's going on in the text. Paul walks around the city. His spirit is provoked within him. He sees that they are religious people and he builds a bridge. I see that you are a most religious people. I even found an image to an unknown God. How religious are they? They're very religious. One of their historians said that in Paul's day, there were 10,000 people And there were 30,000 stone altars, idols, lining the streets. Three idols to every one person. How religious were they? In almost every home, they had a little temple or altar to Zeus, a second one to Apollo. They would have a non-poisonous snake in their pantry, representing Zeus that they would feed every day. They would have a little altar to Hesta or Hestia that was to provide safety for the home. And many of them worshiped Agathas Daimos, the good demon with a glass of wine every single night. These are very religious people, sincere religious people heading in the wrong direction. And Paul's spirit was provoked within him He learned their culture. He cited some of their leaders. He was bold and went into the synagogue. He was bold and went into the marketplace, the Agora. He was bold when he went up to the Areopagus to meet with these philosophers. Think of long robes and long beards and individuals who spend all day long talking about philosophy. And he goes into this hostile environment. Builds common ground and shares the gospel. And what are the results? Well, first they mock him. You're a babbler. You're spermologos. You're like a seed picker. And then then some mock. And others believe. And some will be bunkmates in eternity. As I think about the text... There's a few final applications that I want to put into my life, and maybe you as well. The first is I'm not above idolatry, and neither are you. Even as Christ followers, we're not above idolatry. Idolatry is when something becomes more important, someone becomes more important, something becomes more important to us than God. And we take our eyes off of the Lord and we start placing them on our recreation, our comfort, our job, our relationship, or a relationship we don't have that we do want. It's idolatry. Idolatry isn't just a statue. It's whatever becomes the focal point of our thoughts and our minds. The second thing after I guard my life against idolatry is I wanna guard my life against an Epicurean philosophy which practically says, hey, you're gonna go around once, go with all the gusto you want, grab it, live to the fullest because you're not answerable to God. Yes, you are, and so am I. Don't live, Jeff. With if it feels good, do it. If you see it and want it, go after it. Know that you are answerable to God. Third, I want to remind myself when I'm discouraged or depressed or despondent that stoicism is wrong, fatalism is wrong. It ended up in suicide for Zeno. What's right? It is to know that I have a God who's a creator. I have a God who's a sustainer. I have a God who's a redeemer and has built an incredible eternal home for all who believe in him and that we are the object of God's rapt attention. And finally, without an air of arrogance, I want to remind myself that I want to be provoked in my spirit when I see people go after false gods. I want to be provoked in my spirit when people go after false religions because they lead to a crisis eternity separated from God in a literal hell. And that should provoke my spirit. Evangelism. Missions. They exist because the universal glorification of God does not exist. As John Piper once very cleverly said. And he's right. Why does evangelism and missions exist? Because the universal glorification of God does not exist. And it ought. And when it does not, it ought to provoke in my spirit not an arrogance, but a desire to share the gospel with those who desperately need Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for Paul's message in the Areopagus on Mars Hill. It teaches so much, so much to apply, so much to add into our lives to imitate and replicate. Help us to do so. Father, thank you for your word that teaches us what we ought to know about you and how we ought to live for you. And may we not believe that the chief end or goal of our lives is to please our lives, but to recognize that the chief end or goal of life is to bring glory to your name. And this is an appetizer at best. And the bounty And the banquet is ahead for all of eternity with you. May we live for that. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.